This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. I always love coming together with you on on Sunday and uh, just kind of forgetting the the stresses of the week and just focusing on on the Lord and uh, and and His Word to lay the foundation for the next three weeks of this Advent season. Today we're going to cover a period of several thousand years. Now, if you are a clock watcher, I'm sure that will worry you and it should worry you. But I want to go back to almost the beginning of time, at least as we understand time today. I want to go back to the period shortly after God created Adam and Eve. And and even though we don't know for sure how many years ago that was, I can assure you it wasn't millions or billions of years ago. Um, And I can assure you that they were not ape-like beings. Uh, Most Bible scholars would put that time frame at around 6,000 years ago, with some saying it could extend slightly longer than that, but not millions and billions of years. But I want to go back, and I want to try to lay the foundation as to why it was necessary for Jesus to come to earth as a baby and eventually give up his life in an act of sacrifice that would literally change the trajectory of not only our lives here on earth, but our lives in eternity as well. Now, as we begin building the framework for our lesson, I want to talk about a word that you will find on the front of of your bulletin. For those of you who received a bulletin when you came in, or those of you that are accessing our our bulletin online, you will see that on the very front page, you will see the words, worship guide. And then if you will open it up, um, there on the left side, you will see the words, today's worship. In fact, I just quickly scanned today's bulletin, and I saw that we have used the word worship at least nine different times. I could have missed one or two. But it seems that churches today have kind of tweaked their terminology to more frequently use the word worship, maybe because the word worship uh, just sounds spiritual. Uh, for, For example, we used to call the music portion of a service, what we used to call it, the song service. But now most churches call it worship and song. Or instead of referring to our time of giving as the offering, you know, we're going to receive the offering now, it's worship in in giving. But really, what is worship? Well, worship is just simply recognizing someone's worth or something's worth. And if you were raised in church like I was, you probably heard pastors say many, many times that worship just means worth-ship, worth-ship which I've always thought sounded silly. But to worship is to recognize the value of something or recognize the value of someone. And and human beings have been worshipers from the very beginning of time. When, When people thousands of years ago looked up into the skies, they just instinctively knew that there was a being out there that was on a level far beyond them. And in some form and in some way, they worshiped that being. Now, Charles Darwin wrote his book, Origin of the Species, Promoting Evolution, in 1859. But it really didn't generate much traction for about 100 years. Finally, in the 1960s, it began gaining steam as a theory. But but just think of it. 
until only the last 50 years or so since evolution has wormed its way into our textbooks and and, and clouded people's understanding of creation. But before then, people all across the world, from all races, from all languages, from all geographical areas, they just knew that the stars and the planets and the skies, and, and, and they just knew that, that the, uh, the mountains, the streams, and the rivers, and the lakes on the earth, and they just knew that human beings, with their intricate muscular systems, and, and nervous system, and, and skeletal system, people down through the centuries have just instinctively known that these came about because there was someone out there that created all of this. And their natural response was to worship that being. Now, obviously, they didn't have a clear understanding of, of that being. Sometimes tribes and cultures believed in multiple gods. Some, some of those gods, they believed, controlled acts of nature. So the rain and, and you know, the thunder, the hail, the earthquakes, all of that, they, they, they believed that a god controlled all of that. Uh, sometimes they, they, they believed in gods that controlled fertility. They believed in gods that, that supposedly could heal sicknesses. And, and these people had come to view all of this like walking a tightrope I mean, how do you appease the God so that there would be enough rain, but not too much rain? How do you appease the God so that a culture could be victorious in battle? How do you bribe or appease the God so that they would give you a son instead of a daughter? Sorry, ladies. That's the way the world thought in ancient times and even today in some parts of the world. Well, over time, it was interesting how, how cultures began to believe that the spilling of blood was something that would catch the attention of the gods. And so they began to offer blood sacrifices. It began with animals, cattle, sheep, goats. But then the matter of sacrifice began to evolve a little bit. And so some cultures would capture their enemies and would sacrifice them to the gods. And then when things got desperate, they began to even sacrifice people of their own tribe. And if they really wanted to get the God's attention, they would sacrifice a child and sometimes even their own children. They believed that the gods were holding all the cards. And, and there was always this constant question on people's minds, how can we get the attention of the gods? How can we please the gods so they will bless us? Well, to help determine what was pleasing to the gods, different religious leaders began to surface. You had priests, you had medicine men, you had shaman. And from my country of birth in, in South America, where I spent nearly 20 years of my life, they had witch doctors. And people went to them for healing and prosperity and guidance on how to appease the gods. And, and one of the things they wanted to know was, how do you appease Mother Earth? And, and there they called Mother Earth Pachamama. Pacha just means uh, earth or the cosmos. And it's interesting that a couple of the native languages there in, in, in Bolivia, Aymara and Quechua, both of them um, had this same word for, for earth, pacha. And then, of course, mama was, was mother. And uh, so how do you appease Pachamama? And, and I've seen something done hundreds of times, and I'm not exaggerating here, hundreds of times where, where people, to appease Pachamama, Mother Earth, they would take the, the last little bit of drink in, in, in their cup, whether it was uh, soda or, or, or water or, or, or tea or coffee, they wouldn't drink the last little bit. They would get down there and they would dump it out onto the ground 
That was to give a drink offering to Mother Earth, trying to appease her and, and get in her good graces. And then as a very common, almost daily sight, I, I've seen witch doctors stands along the streets, and, and there they call the witch doctors yatiris. And they would burn incense and have a, have a little fire, making some kind of sacrifice to the gods on behalf of the people. But what's interesting about this system is there was almost always a parallel between making the gods happy and keeping the religious man or the priest or the witch doctor happy. There's a parallel. Because the religious men, and I say men because most of them have been men in the past, that the religious men had learned how to manipulate the people. And, and so he would make a sacrifice to these gods for the people, but of course, his services were never free. In fact, in many cases, they would take advantage of the people. And so these people would come to him. Many of these people were way below the poverty level, and, and they would be asked to bring him what little money they had, or sometimes they would have that person bring some meager produce that they had grown or maybe one of the last animals in their herd, and, and they would have to give this to a particular spiritual leader as payment for whatever he was going to do to try to appease the gods. Now, I know this practice sounds horrible to us, But back in a very dark time of Christianity in the 16th century, the system of indulgence has made its way into the church. You know, pay money. This is tragic, but pay money for the forgiveness of your sin that you committed last night. Or, or, or pay money for the sins that you're going to commit this next weekend. Or, or pay money for the sins of your dead relative. And so down through the years, religious people have learned how to manipulate people. And, and so the system of sacrifice many times became a money-making scam. And even today, you find religious leaders in Christian circles that essentially do the same thing. They, 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 of course, they're more sophisticated now. But, but they learn, they've learned how to subtly manipulate people, making them believe that in order to get God's blessing, then you needed to send them an offering. Or you need to help them buy a personal jet. Or you need to help them build this resort for Christians. And their attitude is, hey, I'm God's holy representative. You need to trust me. And you need to do what I say. And almost always it involved money, sometimes even sexual favors. Well, when it came to the worship of the ancient Israelites, not, not the pagans that we've been talking about, but rather the people who would be chosen by God for His Son Jesus to take on human flesh and become part of, in some ways their worship was similar to the pagan worship that we've been talking about. You know, for example, ancient Jews, in, in obedience to God's law, they practiced animal sacrifice, as the pagans did. In fact, God had even instituted that. God said in Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood. I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. But there were several differences between pagan worship and, and that of the Israelites. And one was that God's law did not allow human sacrifice. The pagans practiced human sacrifice. God's law said, keep it to animals. Another difference that set Jewish worship apart from the worship of the pagans was that God had something that he considered a higher priority 
than just sacrifice. You know, King Solomon kind of summed it up in Proverbs 21.3. He said, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. With all of the pagan nations that were surrounding Israel, the gods didn't care how you treated your wife or how you treated your husband or your kids or foreigners or slaves. It was all about bribing these gods to make sure it rained and to make sure that the crops grew and to make sure that they were victorious in battle. But the Jewish God, God Jehovah, God Yahweh, was different. He was less concerned about the act of sacrifice more concerned about the way that we treated each other and especially especially our obedience to God. It was as if God were saying, look, you can sacrifice to me all day long. You can slaughter half the sheep of Israel. But if you treat people like dirt, if you ignore me, and if you ignore my laws, then your sacrifice doesn't impress me. But then perhaps the biggest difference between the sacrificial system of the pagans and God's people was this, and this was big. This was big. Israel's sacrificial system was not to appease God. Rather, it was to make atonement for sin. And the Hebrew word for atonement is kafar, and it means to cover over something, and generally to cover over something bad with something good in order to restore a relationship. So even though Jewish worship involved animal sacrifice and the spilling of blood, it wasn't to bribe God. It was to reconcile them with God and to cover over their sin. So day after day, month after month, year after year, individual Jews would make animal sacrifice. Sometimes they would bring a grain offering as well to the temple with hopes that it would cover over their sin. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how costly that would be for some of you? I mean, if you had to sacrifice an animal every time you sinned, um, you know, some of us would have declared bankruptcy a long time ago. But then, once a year, something else amazing and unique would take place. On top of these daily personal sacrifices for individual sins, and in what would be like the Can I just say the Super Bowl of of all of the different feasts and festivals that Israel celebrated, and, and depending on the year, but according to our calendar, somewhere between September 14th and October 14th, Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem from all over the nation. And this massive crowd would head towards the temple with the goal of getting as close to the temple as possible. And if you were somebody important, or if you knew somebody important, you might be privileged to get up close enough to see firsthand the very significant religious practices that would take place. Uh, You know, in Branson, if you you know somebody that works at a theater, if you know one of the performers, they can get you in behind the stage. You can see the set, maybe uh, maybe meet some of the rest of the, the people that are performing. It was the same way in Israel. If you knew somebody high up in the religious world, on the holiest day of the year, on the Day of Atonement, what was called Yom Kippur, they could get you into the Temple Mount area and allow you to witness something that most people would only dream about. During this very multifaceted holiest day of the year that had a lot of different moving parts, the nation of Israel would repent of their national sin and they would ask God to forgive the sins of their past year. Wouldn't be a bad idea for America. 
And as part of this day of atonement, something very powerful would take place. And, and again, if you were one of the fortunate ones that knew somebody that, that could get up close enough, you were going to see something that would forever be embedded in your mind. Here's what would take place. Two goats would be led to the high priest. One goat would be positioned on the left. The other goat would be positioned on his right. Two pieces of gold would be brought out. One piece of gold would have inscribed on it, For Jehovah. The other piece of gold would have inscribed on it for Azazel, which um, this word is translated scapegoat. The high priest would take these two pieces of gold, put them in a box, shake them up. The high priest would then reach in and take a piece of gold in each hand. And he would identify the hand that had the piece of gold with the inscription for Jehovah. And they would take that goat that was on that side. And the high priest would say in a loud voice, a sin offering for the Lord. And all the people would respond, answer after him, blessed be the Lord. May the glory of his kingdom be forever and ever. And and they would take that goat and sacrifice it as a sin offering for the Lord. To the Lord. But then the goat on the other side, the the side where the piece of gold said, for Azazel, that goat would then become the scapegoat. And in a very emotionally charged and, and for me almost spine tingling moment, after prayers and confessions, The high priest would then place both of his hands on the head of this goat. And and by doing this, he was saying, I am now placing all of the sin of the nation of Israel of this past year on this goat. Again, this would be accompanied with prayers and confessions. Well, someone would then come forward who had been carefully chosen in advance. And he would be tasked with the responsibility to lead that Azazel or that scapegoat. And it was really interesting to me as I studied this and something that I'd never caught before in my life. I'm in the slow class. But Leviticus 16.21 in the King James Version, and I normally don't read this version, but it said that this man that would lead this goat was to be a fit man. Now, let, let me just talk about this for a moment. This is fascinating to me. King James Version says fit man. Other translations say suitable suitable man or a man in readiness. And so I I was curious to know exactly what this meant. And so I looked it up in the original Hebrew text because uh, I needed to know more. And I learned that this Hebrew word is iti, iti. And do you want to know what iti means? You're about to find out. (laughs) It actually means fit or prepared, or even skillful. Now, my question was, why why did the Bible want us to know that this man that was to lead this scapegoat needed to be fit or prepared? Well, probably because of what he was about to do with this goat required a level of fitness that the most of us do not have. 
And again, I was fascinated as I researched this. This fit man would, would take this goat that had had the sins of the nation symbolically placed on his head, and he would lead the goat through the crowds, the massive crowds there on the Temple Mount. And the Temple Mount was an area of about 35 acres. Those of you that have been to Israel, you, you know exactly where I'm referring to. And to give you a perspective of 35 acres, a, a, a typical football field is 300 feet by 160 feet, which translates into 1.32 acres. So the Temple Mount area was the equivalent of nearly 26 football fields put together. So this fit man would lead the goat through the crowds on the Temple Mount, go down the steps from the Temple Mount, probably on the eastern side of the temple. He would go down, down, and, and those, of the, those of you that have been there, you, you, you can kind of remember this, way down many steps into the Kidron Valley, which is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And this man would then lead that goat across the Kidron Valley. And then he would make his way up, up, up the Mount of Olives. Now, a lot of times tour groups, and I'm, they'll walk down the Mount of Olives, but never do you have a group that walks up. It's too hard, but they walk down. But anyway, he would lead this goat up, up, up the Mount of Olives, and, and then he would cross over the top of the Mount of Olives and lead this scapegoat way into the wilderness of Judea. So this was no stroll in the park. This was not something for, for a couch potato that had inhaled quarter pounders and greasy fries and donuts and milkshakes. Because again, you would have to lead that goat down the mountain, across the valley, up another mountain, hike deep into the wilderness of Judea. And don't forget, you had to come out. So you'd have to return out of the wilderness, hike across the Mount of Olives, down the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, up the slopes leading to the Temple Mount. And for those of you that have been to Israel, and by the way, how many of you have? I know, Sharon, if you've been to Israel, you know, you've, you've got a few that can kind of picture this. Just as a reminder, the Judean wilderness was the wilderness where Jesus was tempted. And for those of you that went on this last tour group, Remember, we were in Jericho, the city of Jericho, for a little while, and we just kind of looked around at the rugged, rugged Judean wilderness. And, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's rugged. But we as Americans, we tend to think that a wilderness is flat, you know, kind of like a flat desert. But the Judean wilderness is not a flat area. It's some of those, the most rugged territory in Israel. There are cliffs and bluffs, and it's desolate. And, and I've got a couple of pictures here. Uh, right there, there's the, the way the Judean wilderness is. And... Uh, you know, I've got one more picture right there. You see kind of the bluff area, the cliffs there. And, and in something that I found very interesting to me, and, and this detail came from an extra biblical source, which means this, that I, I didn't get it from the Bible, but I was reading after some other sources outside of the Bible. So this may be fully factual, may be partially factual, or may just be tradition. But one source said something that was a little bit humorous to me, but was horrifying to the Israelites. Evidently, one year after that scapegoat had been led into the Judean wilderness, picture that right there, one year it had been led into the Judean wilderness, somehow, some way, that goat found its way back to Jerusalem. You know, we, we kind of chuckle about that. 
But the Israelites panicked. Because in their minds, this goat with all of their sins was coming back to them. And can you, can you just imagine thinking your sin had been taken away, but then all of a sudden see that goat strolling back into Jerusalem? And so tradition says this. Again, this isn't the Bible. This is extra biblical um, literature that I've, I've read after. says that the Jewish people took steps to ensure that the scapegoats in the future would never, ever again return and that the sins of the nation would never, ever come back to Israel. And so this fit person was to lead that goat the equivalent of about six and a half miles into the wilderness one way. Picture, you know, right there. Um, and, and so then he was to find a steep cliff, as you can kind of imagine right, right there in, in, in the picture, and he was to lead that goat over there to the edge of that cliff and push him over to his death. They did not want that goat to bring the sins of the nation back into Jerusalem. Well, the priest laying his hands on that scapegoat and symbolically placing the sin of the entire nation was saying that God has taken our sin from us as a nation into the wilderness. We're now sinless as a nation. But here was the catch. This was not a permanent fix. This was good for one year. One year only. The sins of only the past year. And so what would happen, have to happen is that they would have to repeat it again the next year and, and the next and, and, and the next. And every year on the Day of Atonement or on the holiest day of the year on Yom Kippur, they would head to the Temple Mount. Two goats would be led to the high priest. He would draw the pieces, put, put the pieces of gold into a box, shake them up and draw them out. One goat would be sacrificed. The other would have the sins of the nation placed upon his head. And a fit man would lead that goat into the wilderness. This happened year after year after year after year. Now, in some ways, the, the, the Day of Atonement was amazing. Because the people could, for a short time, feel that their, their sins had been covered over. But in another way, the Day of Atonement to them was frustrating because... It was nothing more than a temporary fix for a permanent problem. Nothing that took place on, on Yom Kippur offered forgiveness. All it did was put a covering, a temporary covering over the sin. Well, then something extraordinary and of epic proportions took place. And what initially was confusing to all parties involved. I'm telling you, we're covering a lot of history today. But a baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This wasn't just any baby. Because have you ever thought about this piece of trivia? This baby born would be older than his mom and as old as his dad. Have you ever thought about that? Um, chew on that trivia for just a little bit this morning. But in the year 4 BC or so, this baby was born and an angel came and announced that his name would be Jesus. And he would save people from their sins. Well, this baby grew to be a man. And one afternoon, probably in the year 26 or maybe 27, a man came out of the wilderness and he spoke like a prophet. But he looked like someone that you would not want your daughter to marry. <laughs> Nor would you want to invite him over for dinner because he was scruffy, smelly, and strange. His name was John. 
But John back then was a very common name. So if you were named John, since there were no last names back then, you really needed a nickname to set you apart. And so he got a nickname and he became known as John the Baptist. And the reason he became known as John the Baptist because was, was because he had visited the Methodist Church and the Assembly of God Church and the Church of God Holiness, but he felt more comfortable in the Baptist Church. And so he joined the Baptist Church, became John the Baptist. Not really, I just want to make sure that you're listening here. And, and I'll explain why he was called John the Baptist in just a moment. But John's message was very, very simple. He said, God is about to do something new in the world. And, and he's about to fulfill what he promised to our nation many, many years ago through the prophet Isaiah. And, and so he went down to the Jordan River area, the Jordan Basin area. And what did John do? He was there in Luke 3, 3. It says, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Back to why was John called John the Baptist? Well, because the people had never seen anyone baptizing people like this. And, and John would say to them, are you ready to repent and be cleansed of your sin? And if they said yes, he would essentially ask them, okay, are you serious enough to publicly identify with that? And if they said yes, John would say, come into the water with me. And he would take them and completely immerse them into the Jordan River. John didn't sprinkle. John didn't pour. He dunked. Now, the Jews had heard of Gentiles being baptized before. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to become Jewish, there was a ceremony that you had to go through, including a meal and, and a ceremonial washing. But you would cleanse yourself of your Gentileness. But they'd never seen anyone take anyone and baptize them because this was something you did on your own. But as John the Baptist preached and baptized people, he was bold and he, he was gritty and he was loud and he was sometimes uncouth. He ate foods that were natural and gluten-free and dairy-free and taste-free, such as locusts and wild honey. And he began to attract so much attention that the Bible says that all, all of Judea went to see him. Now, when it says all of Judea went to see him, more than likely that was what today we refer to as a hyperbole. You know, hyperbole is an exaggerated statement that's not meant to be taken literally. And we do that all the time. We say, man, everybody was there. Or, or everybody got sick. Or, or you tell your wife, you always say this. Or you never do this. Those are hyperboles, exaggerated statements that are not supposed to be taken literally. But regardless of whether or not everybody showed up, more than likely... Tens of thousands of people from Judea and Galilee and from the city of Jerusalem made their way down the mountain in what would have taken them at least a day and a half journey by foot each way. Well, the religious leaders began to hear about John. And so they sent some representatives down to the Jordan River Basin to talk to John. And when they finally got through the crowds... They said, John, are you claiming to be the Messiah? To which in John 1.20, he confessed freely, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. But he said, you better get ready because he's coming. And when he shows up, I will decrease, he will increase, and I will not even be worthy to lace up his sandals. But he said, something as amazing is about to happen. Well, John the Baptist, after a little while, had taken all he could from these obnoxious religious know-it-alls. And realizing that he might endanger his life for doing this, he unloaded on them one day. And you know how it is. Sometimes you're around somebody, it's like you can only take them for so long. And you try, and you bite your tongue, and 
zip your lips, but sometimes you can only take so much and you just come unglued. And it's like John came unglued in, in Luke chapter 3, verse 7. He says, you brood of vipers. And calling these religious leaders slimy snakes was worse than calling a Democrat a Republican or a Republican a Democrat. It was bad. As, you know, as they say today, this was throwing serious shade at them. And no doubt the crowd went silent and, and, silent and you could probably hear a pin drop and, and maybe the only noise that you could hear was people going, <gasps> John had just called some of the highest and the most influential rulers in the nation low-down reptiles. He continued on, he said, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance? In other words, Words, you guys are all talk, you are all about show, but your hearts are nasty, your hearts are so full of sin, you keep the rules, but your attitudes stink. And he went on and said, I know what you're thinking. He says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, it's like he read their minds, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every uh, trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And, and John was just saying, you know, as a warning, if you don't start producing some good fruit, then I don't care if you're religious leaders. The axe is at the root of your trees and you guys are going to be history. Well, if you're sleeping on me, wake up here. When, when God had used John to set the stage in the exact way he wanted, when everybody was leaning in, paying attention, when, when everybody was riled up enough to notice what was happening, one afternoon, <laughs> one, in one of the most dramatic scenes in all of history, begins to unfold and this past week in my office, I got chills just thinking about it. John, still surrounded by the masses, stops what he's doing. He begins to look intently and stare at the hill just above where the crowd had gathered. And he paused. And he said, in John 1.29, look. Finally, Look the Lamb of God. And what would this Lamb do? Who takes away the sin and, and catch not just the sin of each person after daily sacrifices, not just the sin of the nation after the Day of Atonement, but rather takes away the sin of what? The world, which is big. Because that allowed us in. We're the world. In other words, John said, look, we finally have the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem. We're about to witness the final sacrifice for sin. Everything we've longed for is about to culminate in one person. And years later, an, a, a, an author, we don't know for sure who it was, but the author of Hebrews wrote a long sermon to the Jewish people. And after the resurrection, here's what this person said about the Jewish sacrificial system. It was such a critical element in the story. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not, not the realities themselves. So, so the animal sacrifices, they were not the real thing. They were just shadows. They were pointing to the real thing. And for this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? 
For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. In other words, you know, you could celebrate the Day of Atonement year after year after year, but it would not be enough. Because they still felt guilty in their conscience is what this says. But this author said, but those sacrifices were not totally bad. Because he goes on, here's what those sacrifices did do in verse 3. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Cover temporarily? Yes. Ease your conscience just a little bit? Maybe. But take away your sin? No. Forgive your sin? No. Cleanse your sin? No. Well, Jesus stepped into the water and asked John to baptize him. And as he came up out of the water and started his official ministry, he set in motion a plan to fulfill and replace the entire sacrificial system, worship system that had been in existence for hundreds and hundreds of years. And again, I keep saying this, but this is big because sin would no longer just be covered over. Sin would no longer just be placed on the head of a goat and led into the wilderness. Sin would no longer have to be atoned for year after year after year because now sin would be forgiven and cleansed once and for all. And this is so amazing. In an unprecedented reversal of roles that nobody could see coming, God would make a sacrifice on behalf of the human race. For hundreds of years, pagans had been sacrificing in order to get the attention and the blessing of the gods. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been sacrificing in order to get a covering over their sin. But now in this reversal that nobody would see coming, God would sacrifice himself on your behalf and on my behalf. And instead of demanding something from us, through his son Jesus, he would offer something to us. He would offer reconciliation and forgiveness. Philip Yancey made a statement in one of his books that just reverberates my heart. He said this, God took a big risk by announcing forgiveness ahead of time. God took a big risk when he communicated to the generations before us and to our generation today that he was announcing forgiveness ahead of time. He was saying, you can tell your children before they even understand the concept of sin that God has provided a way of forgiveness. And in the course of one afternoon, Jesus died on the cross. And listen, worship changed forever. It would no longer involve a sacrifice to appease the gods or even to appease God. It it wouldn't be a sacrifice on the holiest day of the year to just temporarily cover sin for a year. Worship now would involve our lives every day of the year. And by the way, our worship doesn't begin when we give you the welcome, nor does it end when we say the last amen. And when we gather every Sunday, we don't gather to call the gods down. We don't even gather to call God down. We gather because God already came down. And that's why every Sunday's celebration should be emotional because we're celebrating the fact that Jesus 
came to earth. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.